Here we are. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we once again turn our focus to you. We put our focus on you. And as we delve into your scriptures, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the revelator to us. Our eyes would be opened and we would see what would bring us life. And I pray that you would help me today to navigate uh, into this message in, in such a way that I would say what you want me to say. And I certainly pray that we would all hear what you want us to hear. May your word come alive to us today. And I thank you in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. <clears throat> For some time now, I have felt like that beginning of the new year, we would uh, do move into a series, don't turn yet, <laughs> in Nehemiah. And it won't do you any good right now to turn to Nehemiah because we're not studying Nehemiah. And I felt like that was certainly the leading of the Lord. <clears throat> and then I realized that the leading of the Lord said, first, you got to start with Ezra. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew Bible, y'all understand, I think this came out when Rob taught a while back uh, how we got the Bible. By the way, if you didn't see that series that Rob did, I think, was it two parts? You should go back to our YouTube channel and watch that. That's one of the best things that's ever come out of this pulpit, how we got the Bible. But anyway, what come out, what came out of that, and you probably already knew, is that the Hebrew Bible is different than our Bible. A lot of the books in, in the Hebrew Bible are combined. So whereas we have 39 books in this Bible, they have, I don't know the name. If I was a scholar, I would know. But I do know this, that in that Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. They're combined. And so it's kind of hard for us to get move into Nehemiah without first tackling Ezra. Now, Ezra is one of those books that just gets us excited. Man, we just can't. Well, you know good and well that's not true. Don't come on, look at me like that. Because <laughs> we, you know, when you think of all the exciting Oh, Lord Jesus, Ephesians and Philippians and Daniel, all the things. When you say Ezra, oh, okay, Ezra. So I came in 22-degree weather today to talk about Ezra. How many of you understand that if it's in the Bible, God ordained it? I've been listening to a song recently. It's on my phone by Sovereign Grace Music called Show Us Christ. I, I don't have the lyrics for you, and I'm not going to read the whole song, but just listen to these words. Prepare our hearts, O God. Help us to receive. Break the hard and stony ground and help our unbelief. Plant your word down deep in us and cause it to bear fruit. Open up our ears to hear Lead us in your truth. The chorus goes like this. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. Oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses 
Christ is Lord. And then one more verse. Your word is giving light upon our darkened eyes. Guards us through temptations. Makes the simple wise. Your word is food for famished ones. Freedom for the slave. Riches for the needy soul. Come speak to us today. O God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. The writers on that song are Bob Coughlin and Doug Plank. As I, as I listened to that song and thought about the words, then I thought about Ezra. I thought about the importance of this book having been uh, accepted into the canon of scriptures, into the 66 books that we consider to be the inspired, uh, infallible word of God. And so God makes no mistakes. I've heard people say over the years that Esther should be taken out of the Bible because Esther never mentions God, that the Song of Solomon should be taken out of the Bible because it was too risque. <laughs> it's kind of risque, I'll agree. <laughs> But I trust God more than all that other stuff. And so Henry Ford is famous for saying history is more or less bunk. <laughs> what he really meant, if you read the entire quote, he's, he's, he's talking about tradition and that we would get stuck in the mud, so to speak. But a lot of people feel the same way. History is more or less bunk. What's that got to do with me? And of course, we've heard the old saying, if you don't, you don't understand history, then you're bound to repeat it. And if you don't know where you've come from, you can never figure out where you're going. Well, then as I thought about that quote from Henry Ford, I thought about an episode of the Andy Griffith show. I know, I know it's a good thing you're seated. So you can handle the shock of that. <laughs> but there's an episode called Andy Discovers America. He also discovers his future wife. That's another topic. But Andy inadvertently communicates to Opie that history isn't that important. Not all that important. You know, everybody struggles with it. And of course, Opie goes to school and Tells old lady Crump what his daddy, of course, this starts a whole thing. And then the next thing you know, she's going to quit teaching. And they, all the, the, go ahead and put that picture up there. These are the Minutemen, the Mayberry Minutemen. <laughs> By the way, I'll put in a plug here. Uh, the two guys on the front row with Opie, Keith Thibodeau and Dennis Rush, We'll be in Granville this coming April, along with Don Knott's daughter and Andy Griffith's daughter. Anyway, that's another, you just looked that up. So Andy comes up with an idea of how to make history in, uh, fun. He didn't, he didn't lie. He just said, you know, maybe you'll get you another teacher that won't make you study all that Stuff about red coats and guns and muskets and cannons and stuff. Of course, boys, what about red coats and guns and muskets and cannons? And so, of course, the end of the story is they discover that history 
can be very valuable to them and very, and a lot of fun. So I want us to have that kind of fun. Remember, of course, one of the Minutemen is kind of tall. You see that anyway. Another story. <laughs> to understand that every new book that we study is the most important one. Whatever book that we're studying becomes becomes the voice of the Lord to us at that moment by the work of the Holy Spirit. Because it's all God's Word. And I'm going to attack, attack this from several different angles today, but there's an emphasis on this book of Ezra on on uh, building for God. Obviously, we're building the temple. We'll get to that. There's an emphasis that comes out on the need for our obedience to his word. Now, we actually don't, and I, I may mention this again, we actually don't encounter Ezra until about the seventh chapter. And when we encounter him, and I'll talk more about him then, the, the two things that he is adamant about, and I'll mention that again too, and maybe if I say it three or four times, we'll get it. But And one is res, that worship, to restore worship. And the second thing is the value of the Scripture. And and some of you say, why do you stand when you read the Scripture? Well, we don't have a rule, we don't have a law, but you're going to see that verse as we go through this book. And also an emphasis on the an openness to his Holy Spirit, which we need now more than ever. There's also an emphasis on the providence of God. He works in quotations behind the scenes and carries out his purpose. We think it's behind the scenes. But God's always in front of the scenes. He creates the scenes. He works his purpose even when it appears to us that little is happening. And we'll see that in this book. By the way, this is just an overview. And I hope it whets our appetite because I'm, I'm looking forward to digging in. It's an encourage, when God moves the way he does in this book, it's encouragement to us in quote unquote times like these. We, at Don's memorial service, his favorite song was, My Anchor Holds. And while that was another song, I thought about this one. My anchor holds in times like these. In times like these, we need an anchor. And I want to tell you that one of the, one of the aspects and the facets of, of an anchor that gets us through life is the fact that God is providential and God is moving even when we don't think so. There are basically two overriding themes throughout this book, and this is sort of a really high view, but it's number one, God's faithfulness. We see it all through the book. And of course, man's unfaithfulness all through the book. Now, we're going to do something a little different today. Uh, and anyway, 
We're going to begin, I'm going to read chapter 1 of Ezra. And then in a moment, I'm going to have somebody else read chapter 2. And I started to ask you to volunteer to read chapter 2. But if you've got your Bible or your pad or phone in front of you, you're going to see why I didn't ask. So if you would stand with me while I read the first chapter, and then we'll sit back down. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold and goods, with beasts and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. And Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the in the charge of Midrath, I should have had somebody read that, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels, and all the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. And all these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. You can be seated. Boy, there's so much there that I'm having to... God stirred them up. What do you think that is? What do you think that is, God stirring somebody? That's the Holy Spirit. And that's why I said we learn here our dependence on God's Holy Spirit. And sometimes the only way we do something or get something done is that God stirs us up. Now, the odd part is we're going to talk about the exile's return. And so Cyrus sends out the edict that you can leave here, go to Jerusalem, and begin to build the temple. And it's possible... Probable, as a matter of fact, that there were people, we know there were people who were not Jews who were not taken into captivity. We know there were some of the Jews that were not captured and did not go to Babylon, and so they remained around Jerusalem. 
It's a small, small number, but there are some. It's possible that they were trying to rebuild the temple already. I don't know. I can't find any evidence of that. But Cyrus says, God's moved on me. Now, this is the king of not Jerusalem, not Israel, not Judah, Persia. Today, that's Iran. And he was also over Babylon. God has stirred up my heart. He's moved on me. I, I got to come back to that. So, I wanted us to see chapter 2 and the, the people, the exiles who returned. But I don't have the nerve to read it. Nor the smarts. Nor the, anyway. And so if you would keep your Bible, whatever you have, tablet, phone, actual Bible, and follow along. If you are looking at the notes in the Version app, you will see these verses. And I'm going to ask somebody to read them who can read them. So if you would just hang with us for just the next few moments. Go ahead. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Reum, and Baana. This is the count of the men of Israel, the descendants of Parosh, 2,172. The descendants of Shephatiah, 372. The descendants of Ara, 775. The descendants of Pehath-Moab, through the line of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The descendants of Elam, 1,254. The descendants of Zatu, 945. The descendants of Zakai, 760. The descendants of Bani, 642. The descendants of Bebai, 623. The descendants of Asgad, 1222. The descendants of Adonikam, 666. The descendants of Bigvi, 2056. The descendants of Aden, 454. The descendants of Ater, through Hezekiah, 98. The descendants of Bezai, 323. The descendants of Jorah, 112. The descendants of Hashem, 223. The descendants of Gibar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netopha, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Aram, Kephira, and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 
725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sinea, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Judea, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the descendants of Jeshua and Cadmiel, through the line of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the descendants of Asaph, 128. The gatekeepers, the descendants of Shalom, the descendants of Ater, the descendants of Talmon, the descendants of Akub, the descendants of Hatita, and the descendants of Shobai, 139 in all. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Labena, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rhea, the sons of Reason, the sons of Nicoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephisim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basleth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hatipha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hesophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jaela, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hattil, the sons of Pachareth Hazabaim, and the sons of Amai. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Talmila, Telharsha, Kerub, Adon, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Delea, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nicoda, 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habeah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God, to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Anybody want to volunteer to read that again? <laughs> Not me. 
And be honest with you, I was tempted to just skip that chapter. And then I remembered somebody last week (laughs) saying the reason lists like that are in the Bible, and we were particularly talking about Leviticus, is that God's main focus is people. And there's a reason God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired. We're not, we're not exactly sure who wrote this book. But there's a reason that God inspired the Holy Spirit to have whoever that is write down these names of these exiles. This book is divided into two segments. The first segment is chapters 1 through 6. covers about 20 years. And we see, as we've already observed, God moves the heart of the ruler of Babylon, King Cyrus of Persia, to issue this edict to start uh, to that the willing Jews can return to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple and the city. Now, just think about that. Think about the unlikelihood of a pagan, godless king being moved by God. And we wring our hands and fret that God is going to let our society crumble into nothing. I want to tell you God's bigger than that. And so now you have these these uh, exiles who've returned. And we have a problem. They have a problem with distinctives. Don't forget, they've been anywhere from 60 to 70 years in Babylon in captivity, so they're returned. In many ways, they returned as strangers to a land of Jews who had not been taken. Remember, there were some who weren't taken. And so here comes the exiles, and now they're trying to uh, become a part again of this society, and yet there's an issue of being of distinctives. There were also people... In this uh, group, uh, there were people of other ethnic origins. We'll see in a moment a verse that, that God made room for those outside the Jewish community. And there was a need when they came back, there was a need for them to remain a distinctive people who are faithful to the Lord. Now, if God has allowed you to go into captivity for 70 years... And then you get freed by King Cyrus, you might have a propensity to say, God, I don't know about you, but a grand overview, uh, that we should see is that the, the reason the people of God go into captivity, it was because God said to them, among other things, but this is the main one, look, every seventh year, don't plant any crops. Let the land rest. Plant six years, and in the seventh year, let the land rest. You know, if God made dirt, he ought to know the best way to handle it. Well, they decided they knew more than God. And so they were planting seven years in a row. They They never took, they never gave the land its Sabbath. And one day God said, okay, you've accumulated 70 years worth of this. I'm sending you away so the land can get the rest that I declared. 
God's going to get what he wants one way or the other. We would rather not the other. And so here they are, exiles. Lord, help me. Uh, When we get to chapter 7, there will be another group of exiles who return. And this is when we will be introduced to Ezra, the person. That's in chapter 7 through 10. These are sent by Artaxerxes, who's the Persian king at the time. And, And interestingly enough, God again moves on this guy. And not only does he release the people, he sends money and valuables All of those things to enhance this temple. Don't miss the magnitude of this. If it's the king of Judah, that's one thing. But the king of Persia, it takes a sovereign God to do that. There are so many themes in this book. Of course, the main theme is the the main theme of the scripture, and that is God. God is the main theme. Because they're returning to not Jerusalem, they're returning to God. We'll see the God of Genesis 1 in that he is awesome, and that that should be a capital A, and sovereign. Only a sovereign God could move on two wicked pagan kings to release his people, and not only that, but to fund the rebuilding of the temple. Only God could do that. God of Genesis 2 coming down into creation and having fellowship with the human beings that he's created. God's involved in their lives. And we'll see this throughout these, these 10 chapters. And again, as I alluded to earlier, faithful worship needed to be restored in this community because the rhythms of worship were disrupted by the exile, and they needed restoration. Now, I know we don't ever want to get into doing things for the sake of doing things. We don't want to do things because they're rote. But I want to submit to you there's nothing wrong with rhythms of worship. All of us should have a certain amount of rhythms of worship in our life and whatever that means to you. But because they were in exile, all of that went by the wayside. And, of course, the people of God, we, we just read that there were approximately 50,000 of the exiles in the first wave who came back. <clears throat> Once again, you say, well, I just put that up there. People. Everybody say people. People, people of God. And once we, especially once we get into chapter 7 and on, uh, and Ezra arrives, we will see the value of the Scripture. The value of the Scripture. Giving Scripture to people is urgent and a never-ending task. And the reason that giving Scripture to people is a never-ending task and urgent is because there's always other voices. There will always be other voices saying to us, disregard, disregard. And yet when we see the scripture, we see the veracity of the scripture. We're not going to disregard. Ezra 9, 4 speaks of everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. 
May we have a, uh, a respect and an honor for God's word. And I don't mean tremble out of fear. And I don't mean I just, we tremble because God is awesome. God's word is awesome. And we learned when we we're doing our series on the Ten Commandments that you cannot separate God from his word. They go together. And so may we have such a reverence for God's word that we almost tremble. This attitude, by the way, is a world away from just law keeping and observing regulations. If all you see the Bible as is a rule book or a book of regulations, then I want to introduce you to the author of the Bible, the God of the Bible. That was not God's intention. But if you see the scripture, the very word of God written down for our benefit, if you see that with such reverence and awesomeness, then you have the proper perspective of what God's word is supposed to be. And so, Trying to draw these threads together, you know, sometimes an overview is harder than just digging in, okay? But I want us to get a big picture if we can. Drawing these threads together, here's something. God never abandons his purpose. I know that when those exiles were in Babylon, that they thought God had abandoned his purpose as it relates to Jerusalem. And God gave them some instructions. Jeremiah 29, we like to read a lot. We like to read one particular verse, but we don't ever want to read the rest of it. But anyway, but God never abandons his purpose. Now, it may be, watch this, delayed, but he never quits. Ezra 9.13 tells us faithful are his promises and his, watch this, his mercy exceeds his anger. I like that. I'm, I'm like Kevin. I want to see that dish on my plate. <laughs> Faithful are his promises and his mercy exceeds his anger. Yes, God gets angry. I would, I would uh, challenge you in this. <sighs> Read through some of the, especially just do the minor prophets. Or take your pick. Read through some of the Old Testament books because God says to Israel, I'm going to take you out. I'm done with you. Your unfaithfulness is a stench to my nostrils. He goes through this whole thing and then almost in, in almost every case at the end of that book, he says, but I will redeem you. I will save you. I will gather you up. His, his mercy always exceeds his anger. And, and he works providentially by all means, especially through powerful rulers to accomplish his purposes. Now I know we think that all we got to do is go in a voting booth and we get the right person and everything's going to be great. If you've lived long enough, you know 
That is not true. Lord, help me. We, let me just encourage you in this. We Americans have turned the presidency of the United States into a kingship. We view whoever we've put in the White House as our king with all authority and all absoluteness. And so we put all of our eggs in that basket. You see, you're getting political? Well, I'm getting where we live. How about that? It's far more important for you to know who's on the school board in Wilson County or whatever county you live in. It's far more important for you to know your state representative and your your state senators and things. Local. Pay attention to local. Well, for those of you I've lost, I hope I get you back. Not only does God not abandon his purpose, God never gives up on his people. You saw, Some of you are thinking, and some of you watching at home are thinking, well, no, that's not true. God's already given up on me. And, I, you know, here's this great theological term. <clears throat> it's not true. God never gives up on 70 years. I'm sure at year 69 they were thinking, well, I guess we're done. I guess this is going to be the rest of our lives. And you see, even at that, if you remember, God said, 70 years. Seven, And plus you had Jeremiah and others prophesying all along. 70 years. But yet God doesn't give, give up on his people. He always draws them back into the covenant. Because our relationship with God is a covenant relationship. Belonging to God is not primarily by a membership in a race, but it's a willing acceptance of his covenant. By the way, you accept his covenant on his terms. And you submit your life to his terms. And by the way, that's a good thing. And again, in 621, we'll see that this covenant, this relationship is open to people of any nation. God always made provision for the Gentiles. Ezra will really make it clear that God gives light for guidance of his people. God will not leave you alone. He will not leave you without an illuminated path. He will not leave you without direction. The emphasis on scripture in this book reminds us of 2 Peter 2.19 where Peter writes, Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. And to add to that, Jesus says of himself in the Revelation, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright 
and morning star. I submit to you once again that the scriptures always bring us to Christ. The scriptures are not our object of worship. The scriptures bring us to our object of worship, who is Jesus Christ. He says, I'm the bright and morning star. The words that the prophets wrote down of old always bring us to Christ. Our problem is, as human beings, we read the scriptures to win an argument. We read the scriptures to find a law or to find a rule, to find some regulation that we can follow. And I can tell you, the scripture says, the letter kills. The spirit gives life. Allegiance to the Lord is demonstrated by our attention to worship. We've talked about this recently, but it's so important that we see worship as an all-encompassing thing and not just coming on Sunday morning and singing some songs, putting some, uh, some money in a basket and go home. Worship is, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, that you would give your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Which is your, your reasonable and spiritual worship. That's worship. Now, that includes getting together and singing and worshiping brothers and sisters. That includes doing the sacraments. That includes everything that we talk about, but it also includes our entire life. Uh, the entirety of who we are, what we do. Now, that doesn't mean we walk around as zombies all the time or walk around just spitting out platitudes all the time because I don't want to be around you if that's all you're going to do. It bugs me to death if I try to have a conversation with somebody and they can't do anything but quote Scripture to me. I've read the Scripture. Let's have a conversation. Born out of the Scripture. And in the building of the temple, there was a proper ordering of God's work. Proper ordering. That's why we see uh, the institution of the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians. Everything had to be in order. Finally, their worship was joyful. I know Sean had to pump us up this morning. And get us going. I guess 22 degrees will do that to you. <laughs> but if we could just take a moment when we come to a place like this morning that we're going to gather and we're going to offer songs of worship to God. If we could just take a moment and think about what we're doing. I really appreciated the Andre Crouch song. Somebody said, what is that? <laughs> well, it was the last song we did. I was reminded of probably the greatest preacher who ever lived, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 
who said, and it got me in trouble one time. I had a lady in here get all bent out of shape because I said this, but I was just quoting Spurgeon. <laughs> Spurgeon said, the blood of Jesus Christ flowed down that cross. You know, it wasn't just a trickle. The blood of Jesus Christ flowed down that cross to the ground and no one has ever been able to gather that blood up since. And of course his point was the blood will never lose its power. Their worship was joyful. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. Everybody say with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. There we are again. Turn the heart of the king of Assyria, not the king of Judah, not the king of Israel, the king of Assyria. So he aided them. He, the king of Assyria, he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Joyful. I hope you'll stay with me. Or I'll be in here preaching to myself. But anyway. That God, through the preaching of the word, would show us his glory. The preaching of Ezra. As we work our way through this book. It's not a long book. Of course, when we get done, we're going to move right into Nehemiah. Which is a little longer book. But you can't have Nehemiah without Ezra. As a matter of fact, Ezra appears in Nehemiah. So anyway, stand with me.